Hello, my lovely listeners, my independent friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Miss Independent Podcast, where I teach you how to reach financial freedom, how to invest, how to start that business you've always wanted to, and how to go further in your career. I missed you guys. I had to take a week off the pod, so I got a little sick, and as you can tell, my voice has dropped probably like six decibels, and at that point, I sounded like a way more nasally and way less sexy version of Emma Stone. So that was fun. It's definitely something going around, so make sure you take care of yourselves, my finnies. Bit of a life update. I'm finally home after spending a full month working in the sun, and I can understand why Sam Bankman-Fried, aka SBF, chose to set up his work residence in the Bahamas. Well, that and the fact that the Bahamas is a tax-free country, not fully a tax haven, because there's no income tax imposed on employees, no corporate tax either. That's actually changing soon to 15% as of 2024. And they're one of 33 countries that agreed to implement a minimum global corporate tax rate of 15%. But listen to this. There's no capital gains tax, no dividend tax, no tax on inheritance, gifts, sales, or value-added taxes. So that's why there's a lot of American expats that live there and a lot of billionaires that reside in the Bahamas. And not surprisingly, that's why Sam Bankman-Fried, or SBF, decided to move there. But before we get into that, let's start at the very beginning. Who is Sam Bankman-Fried? If you ask me this in October, I tell you he's one of the richest people in crypto thanks to his FTX exchange and Alameda research firm. But as of November 2020, the 30-year-old declared bankruptcy and lost his entire self-made fortune of $17.2 billion. That's billion with a B. Based on data from Forbes, his net worth peaked at an estimated $26.5 billion, and it was tied up in his ownership of about half of FTX and a share of its FTT tokens, which we'll come back to. But if you're like me and you like to study billionaires, learn about their lives, figure out what makes them tick, I'll share some of my research and finding with you guys. I've been obsessed with this story for the past like week and a half. And so that's why this episode's taken a little bit longer to come out because it is filled with details about his life and things that I've uncovered. I'm really, really excited to get into it. Usually, billionaires place a fair amount of value on education, self-education, academics, but they, they value learning. And SBF was born into a family of academics. Both his parents are currently professors at Stanford Law School. His aunt is the dean of Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. His brother, Gabe Bankman-Fried, is a former Wall Street trader, and he's the director of a nonprofit called Guarding Against Pandemics. Also going to put a pin in this pretty interesting detail, which I'll come back to. But let's start SBS story from the beginning. He's born and bred into academia. We don't know much about his early years, but we do know that he grows up in California as a pretty intellectually inclined child. He goes to math camp. His high school years are pretty irrelevant, but he's pretty much a big nerd. And if you've seen pictures of him, you know, he looks like a nerd, but he has this glow up in university. He goes to MIT, he gets a degree in physics, minors in math. And this is where he thrives, okay? This is where he finds his people. He discovers 
this philosophy of altruism and that guides him through life later on. He meets his people here, okay? He meets this clan, people that love League of Legends, that are math nerds, and he just thrives. But that's where his life gets pretty interesting. In the summer of 2013, a year before he graduates MIT, he gets an internship at Jane Street Capital. Most people know it as just Jane Street. You may have heard of it. It's one of the world's largest market makers. And if you haven't heard of it, it's a proprietary or prop trading firm. Quick definition for you guys. Prop trading is when a trader trades stocks, bonds, currencies, commodities, or other financial instruments, but it doesn't use its own money. So it doesn't use the firm's money. Instead, it uses depositors' money, and it uses that to make a profit for itself. Prop traders operate similar to hedge funds from a strategy standpoint. They do a lot of like index arbitrage, volatility arbitrage, statistical arbitrage, things we're not going to get into, but I will explain arbitrage as a general strategy. So it's pretty critical to the story. So arbitrage in its most basic, basic sense is taking advantage of a price difference. So it's taking advantage of the price discrepancy of the purchase or sale of a combination of securities to lock in a profit. Prop trading in general involves a lot of arbitrage. And SBF learns all about it when he works at Jane Street. He works there as an intern. He gets a full-time offer after he graduates, but he doesn't stay there for very long. After about three years, in 2017, he leaves Wall Street and he moves to Berkeley, California. For a brief month after he leaves Jane Street, he works as the Director of Development for the Center of Effective Altruism. Remember I said I was going to come back to altruism. So altruism is what guides SBF throughout life. It's a philosophical belief that one should bring about the greatest amount of good to the largest amount of people. And supposedly, this still guides him day to day. But his love of altruism connects him with Tara Macaulay. And about a month into this role at the nonprofit, they start Alameda Research together, which has been in the news quite a bit with everything going on. So this is where the story gets really, really juicy. Alameda Research sets out to be a quant trading firm that specializes in crypto. Quant trading is quantitative trading. Basically, they use strategies like arbitrage, like market making, and they trade volatility. So basically everything that SBF learns at his big boy corporate job, but he applies it to the wild, wild west of crypto. And the pivotal aha moment that makes Bankman Freed a billionaire happens in January of 2018. So January 2018, he realizes that there's a price discrepancy in the price of Bitcoin between the Japanese markets and the American markets. Man, I, w I wish I did this in 2018. Like, I wish I figured this out in 2018 too. So things would have been a little bit different. But at this point, he realizes that Bitcoin is a lot more expensive in Japan, even though it's the same asset. So he starts buying Bitcoin in the US and starts selling it in Japan. And then he starts doing this at scale. So we're not talking like one or two Bitcoins a day. No, we're talking $25 million per day. He moves the firm's headquarters to Hong Kong. And he keeps doing this day in and day out, slowly stacking his crypto. That's what it's called in crypto trading when you take profits. Stacking, like imagine slowly stacking gold bars. Same kind of concept. But anyways, late 2018, SBF goes to a cryptocurrency conference in Macau which is like the Vegas of Asia. It's off the coast of Hong Kong. It's a Portuguese colony. 
And it's literally like Vegas. You have all these massive casinos there, a lot of conferences. But he goes to Macau. He gets all hyped up with all these other crypto bros. And then he starts FTX. And FTX, which has been in the news quite a bit in the past little while, is a cryptocurrency's derivatives exchange. He decides to start an exchange at a time where Coinbase and Binance have already solidified themselves as the world's largest trading platforms. Coinbase mainly operating within the US, and Binance, which got its start in China, moved its headquarters to the Cayman Islands, operates all over, but its main markets are Asia. So he sees these big players and he's like, well, fuck it. I have the liquidity to start an exchange because he was trading $25 million worth of Bitcoin a day, stacking his crypto, making money, and he used that to fund the exchange. So he thinks to himself, I'm going to do it. And in three short years, he grows FTX to a staggering valuation of $32.5 billion. A lot of this is like right time, right place, right? Crypto did see a massive boom in 2021 and 2022, but a lot of FTX success is due to their acquisition growth strategy, which I'll get into. So while you and I in the pandemic were stocking up on toilet paper, (laughs) SPF was stocking up on companies and quietly, quietly building this global fleet of companies to compete against Coinbase and Binance. So in 2022, he grows FTX over a thousand percent. He ends the year 2020 with 90 million in revenue. At the end of 2021, when crypto hits an all-time high, he ends the year with over a billion in revenue. And FTX had FTX US, and then there was just FTX, which was all of the other sides of the business. But their US business was only a blimp in their top line. So just a tiny smidge. It accounted for less than 5% of revenue. So he goes out and he acquires 130 different companies across FTX, FTX US, and Alamedia. From a business standpoint, this is what helps him scale really fast. So he's buying companies, buying startups that help him get the proper regulatory licenses so he can set up shop in new countries. Crypto's pretty... I mean, crypto's still the Wild West, but there's certain regulations that you need to get around. So by buying startups that already had their foot in the door, that already had some sort of user base, you know, brand recognition, it was a way for him to, one, buy customers in that specific space, but also to get around some of the regulations that he needed. And at this point, he keeps the main arm of his business, FTX Trading. He moves it to Antigua. And then he moves FTX to the Bahamas in 2021. And he moves his founding team with him. And they're all living in the same house. They buy $300 million in real estate, including buying property in Albany, which is like the playground of the rich in the Bahamas. He buys a few different properties here. It's a super expensive neighborhood. And it's literally where billionaires live. FTX Trading also buys a bunch of assets in Switzerland, Australia, And it brings the total to 15 smaller companies across the world at this point we're talking about. He grows his global footprint to Cyprus, Germany, Gibraltar, Singapore, Turkey, UAE. And he becomes known in the crypto world as a lender of last resort, which is really, really funny for how the situation turns out. But essentially, he starts buying up companies just as their liquidity dries up. And he's... It's like a bank that's waiting for you to foreclose on your mortgage. And instead of buying homes, he's buying other kinds of assets. 
is buying distressed companies. According to financial statements that CNBC got access to, in July of this year, he signs a deal that gives him the option to buy BlockFi. He has roughly $2.5 billion in cash left after his shopping spree, and he has a 27% profit margin. With advertising, it's closer to 50%, but I don't like to include advertising. It is a real expense, so let's say a 27% profit margin. He then goes in to raise money because he wants to keep growing his business. He wants to keep acquiring new companies. So he raises $400 million from SoftBank and Tiger Global at a $32 billion valuation. He raises money from Sequoia Capital. He actually gets $213 million from them after one Zoom meeting, which allegedly he was playing League of Legends during. Red flag. <laughs> but a lot of venture capital money starts flowing in. $2 billion worth, to be exact. He gets all kinds of other investors. It's not just venture capitalists that are investing in him. Tom Brady and Giselle become equity investors in the company. In October 2021, he gets naming rights to Miami's NBA stadium until 2024. Fun fact, I actually went to go see the Heat playoff game at FTX Arena last year, and I remember walking in there being so excited about the future of crypto. Oh, how things have changed. It's also so fitting that FTX sponsors the stadium in Miami. Miami's such a crypto-friendly city. There's billboards everywhere. You can pay for more things in crypto there than you can in most places in the world, outside of maybe El Salvador. But it makes sense that they chose Miami. They don't just limit themselves to basketball, though. They also got a Super Bowl ad, and they became the official sponsors of a Major League Baseball team. So FTX becomes so much bigger than Sam Bankman freed himself. Mentioned at, towards the end, he has over 130 companies under the FTX umbrella, and yet he continues running FTX like a shitcoin. I'll, I'll explain that bit, but somehow he raises this absurd amount of money and he remains the majority owner of FTX. And he owns 90% of Alameda Research. I want to pause here for a second. I want to go back to Bahamas. I mentioned that FTX was based in the Bahamas. I mentioned he moved his founding team there. What I didn't mention is that it's basically run by a gang of kids. So they ran their business from a luxury penthouse with FTX and Alameda's office steps apart. The penthouse that he and his inner circle live in actually just got listed on the market for $40 million. And he had 10 housemates, all of which were somehow romantically involved with one another. So they all are currently or used to be paired up, like romantically involved with each other. His COO, the CEO of FTX, is Constance Wong. And based on feedback from employees, Constance and Sam dated. Constance was also an analyst, which is like an entry-level job in finance. So she was an analyst for two years coming out of school at Credit Suisse in Singapore. And then she goes on to become the COO and joins him in the Bahamas HQ. <laughs> so from analyst to COO, that is the fastest career trajectory I've ever seen. But hey, that happens. And I'm sure the same thing happened at Facebook early on. But a lot of the people outside of Constance, a lot of the other people that lived there were his old co-workers from Jane Street, other people that he met at MIT. So basically, it's a house full of kids running around with other people's money. But the crucial, crucial thing to the story is that the CEO of Alameda is Carolyn Ellison, who also dated SBF, but they dated on and off. So what's happening now, when everything comes crashing down, 
in November of 2022, which is when I'm recording this, because I'm sure there's going to be so much that comes out after this is after this episode's been released. But SBF basically uses Alameda, his first company, as FTX's piggy bank. Half of Alameda's assets, around six billion at the time, were an FTT token, which is FTX's native cryptocurrency. So Alameda gets in trouble, right? It goes underwater. They make this trade. They make a levered trade and they have no liquidity to cover it. So SBF lends Alameda, or rather his ex-girlfriend, $10 billion. It's not his money. It's client funds. So it's people that have invested in SBF or money that he's gotten from, you know, venture capital. He lends client funds to use to his girlfriend. And people get a whiff of this because it, you know, causes a lot of backlash amongst employees, I'm sure as well, but people get a whiff of this and it causes a massive outflow. $5 billion worth of client funds flow out of FTX. So people start taking their money out of the exchange. But FTX doesn't have $5 billion in liquidity to support all of these outflows. Because companies typically don't have all this money lying around in cash, especially considering the fact that SBF's been on a major shopping spree and buying companies left and right. And after we look at this in detail, what truly, truly went down here is that FTX's legal team and finance team weren't in the loop. Sam had what's called a backdoor in their accounting. So he could alter the company's financial records without alerting your typical external auditors, which are usually involved. So that's why he was able to move $10 billion without triggering internal compliance or external auditors. I want you guys to know this is not like a small amount of money, right? If, imagine your company if you work 9 to 5. Imagine the approvals that you would have to go through if you wanted to borrow money from the company. But especially if you needed to borrow $10 billion and move that somewhere or buy some sort of software that costs you $10 billion. Another really interesting thing to note is their auditing firm is called Prager Metis and it, its office is in the metaverse. So that tells you all you need to know. Actually, let me let me paint this picture a little bit more. I'll add a few brushstrokes here. So the auditing firm that looked over FTX's financials had over a billion dollars in revenue in 2021. An auditing firm, okay? And after it was investigated by Coindesk, it was revealed that Prager Metis also operates in Decentraland, where it sponsors the Decentraland baby dolls. Like, that's so sus. Usually companies are externally audited to make sure there's no fishy business that goes on, but this smells as funky as if we're walking through a fish market, which, sorry to paint that picture, but if anyone's done that, you know how awful that is. But anyways, Alameda's in trouble, and because Alameda's in trouble, FTX is in trouble, people start panicking, People start taking their money out of crypto. They're trying to avoid another Luna episode. So there's a flood of people withdrawing their funds from FTX. And to try to calm the panic or to try to stop the FUD, which in crypto speak is fear, uncertainty, doubt, it's an acronym. SPF tweets, everything is fine. FYI, this tweet's now deleted, but F everything is fine. He says that FTX is happily buying the FTT token as it plunges. Companies do this all the time. They buy back their stock in order to inflate the price at least somewhat. Same thing happens in crypto. So it says they're buying back the FTT token as it plunges, and that's a sign usually that they think that it's undervalued. He says that FTX has enough to cover all client holdings. It says that they don't invest client assets, 
and that they've been processing all transactions and will continue to do so. At this point in the story, this is where things get really juicy. Binance sees everything that's going on, literally just eats its biggest competitor overnight. Chang Pen, who's the CEO, he tweets that the firm is going to sell its holdings of FTT, the FTX token, and it received these tokens when it actually invested and bought equity in FTX in 2021. Because Binance has a substantial amount of tokens, the price of FTT was dramatically, dramatically impacted. It's pretty much the ultimate sign that the company's done. And that's when retail investors started to follow suit even more. So it's like Sid from Toy Story. I don't know if you remember that meme where he's holding the Woody doll and he drops it and says, I don't want to play with you anymore. That's pretty much what happened. But the shitty thing is this doesn't just affect FTX and FTT. And this episode has so many acronyms. I'm sorry, guys. But it doesn't just affect the company and its token. It affects the crypto market as a whole because other cryptos start to plummet because people start to lose trust in crypto. And then... What happens at this point kind of shocks the world. So CZ tweets that Binance and FTX are entering a strategic transaction and that Binance has entered into a non-binding agreement to purchase FTX because of their liquidity crisis. So then announces on Twitter that the company is going to do their due diligence. They're going to complete it soon. And he adds in that all crypto exchanges should avoid using tokens as collateral, which makes sense. He also writes that at this point, he expects the price of FTT to be extremely volatile in the coming days as things develop. And on the day that he makes this announcement, FTT loses 80% of its value. Then on November 9th, Wall Street Journal reports that Binance is walking away from the FTX acquisition a day after looking into FTX's books. One day after. CZ, the CEO of Binance, gets cold feet. He looks under the hood of the company and he's like, nah, fuck this. (laughs) Too many red flags. It's like when you go on a date with a guy, first date, and he doesn't even reach for the bill. Now, I don't mean to say that men have to pay for everything, you know, but do the dance. Do do the dance. Like, at least offer. It's a major red flag. And CZ sees this major red flag in FTX. He's like, hell no. So he tweets, Binance is walking away from the deal to acquire FTX. So what happens, what the trajectory of events is in terms of Twitter, okay? SBF tweets, assets are fine. Assets are not fine. FTX US is fine. Binance and FTX have entered a strategic agreement. Binance doesn't want to buy FTX. FTX US is bankrupt. SBF at this point steps down as CEO because he's declared bankruptcy and he hands over control of his company to John J. Ray III. John J. Ray III is the former Enron bankruptcy lawyer, and he's currently guiding FTX through their Chapter 11 process. Now, the more I dig into the story here, the more I uncover. Like I said, I've been obsessed with this whole story for the past little while, but anonymous sources reached out to Reuters, and they said that SBF transferred at least $4 billion from FTX to Alameda Research without any disclosure to insiders or to the public earlier in 2022. So, What sparked this whole situation in November isn't even the first time this has happened. Sources say that the money that was transferred included customer funds and that it was backed by FTT and shares in Robinhood. Oh, also another kind of important thing to note is that SBF owns a 7.6% stake in Robinhood based on what was reported as assets 
in the financials that were leaked. So watch their stock dip now as a result of this. Because when you declare bankruptcy, you liquidate your assets to pay off your, your creditors. So there will be a massive sell. A sell of 7.6% of the company's shares will probably get dumped. But back to Alameda and FTX. To summarize, Alameda Research suffers a series of losses in May and June because the crypto market is in a bear market or a crypto winter, as it's called in crypto speak. FTX loans the trading firm more than half of its customer funds. And SPF chucks this up to just a poor judgment call. Like, as if this was, you know, a poor judgment call like me wearing running shoes on a day where it's snowing instead of winter boots. <laughs> Not a poor judgment call. This is like a massive fucking decision. But anyways, an anonymous source, like an employee or someone in their inner circle, says that Carolyn Ellison, SBF, and two other FTX executives were fully aware of what was going on and knew that they were using customer funds. It actually explicitly forbids FTX from doing this in FTX's own terms of service. So now FTX and obviously all of their subsidiary companies are under major water. People have been trying to liquidate their assets. And if they did it before they declared bankruptcy, they, they probably might have been fine. They would have lost a ton of money, but they would have been able to withdraw their funds. At this point, there's no guarantee that retail investors or even institutional investors are going to get their money back. SBF filed for a Chapter 11 bankruptcy, and that means that they get to restructure the business and the businesses to pay off as many debts as possible. Let's talk about the impact here. They're paying off debt in order of importance, so it's going to be a bloodbath for who gets their money first. But the retail investors, the little guys like me and you, we get the short end of the stick. And actually, you know what, not just the retail investors, and this brings me a little bit of joy, but Sequoia Capital, the big VC firms... You guys know my opinion on VC. I, I recorded a whole episode on this saying that VC firms are like lesser well-known pyramid schemes. Go listen to it from a little while ago if you're curious. But Sequoia Capital writes off their $210 million loan to FTX and they write it down to zero. To them, it's only 3% of their fund. So they reassure their investors that they're going to be fine. Sequoia Capital is obviously not the only institutional investor that's affected Canadian teachers have a pension fund that makes investments on behalf of the Canadian teachers. And it's reported that Canadian teachers could have lost up to $95 million because of the FTX implosion as well. Although I don't doubt that they took a very safe position and crypto is a small part of their portfolio. Outside of just FTX, you've got BlockFi and 130, 129 if I'm including BlockFi, 129 other companies that were affected by this. There were big exchanges. Like it wasn't just your mom and pop small, you know, businesses. These are, you know, big exchanges that people kept their funds in instead of keeping them in a cold wallet. If you guys learned anything about my past crypto episodes, if you are in crypto for the long term and you're investing in Bitcoin and Ethereum, it's a very good idea to get a ledger. It looks like a USB stick essentially, and you can keep your crypto on a cold wallet because anything can happen to an exchange. And that's exactly what was proven here. I personally know people that have been affected who have lost hundreds of thousands of dollars. So make sure you check on your crypto friends. They could be in a pretty dark place right now. I mean, check on your friends in general. It doesn't cost you anything to send a quick text and say, hey, how have you been? But anyways, the last piece that I want to talk about with the FTX story is his employees. And I found this on Reddit. It's heartbreaking. We don't know how much of this is true, 
but there's a lot of inside info here that I do want to share. I'll read the whole post that I found. I'm a source close to the FTX situation. Sam ruined the lives of many of his current and former employees. Everyone at FTX is shocked and disappointed. They were all fighting for Sam until they found out what happened on Twitter. Sam's inner circle, the only people who knew what was going on. Many employees had their life savings on FTX. Sam promoted FTX as a trusted bank internally and externally. Bonuses to the FTX.com employees usually consisted of FTX.com stock and FTT. Most employees kept their funds on the platform. They either directly deposited their salary or transferred it onto FTX.com the moment they received it. Employees actively worked on products that made it easier to automatically send money to FTX. So this was promoted both internally and externally. In October 2021, FTX bought out Binance's shares, which was promoted as a big win internally by Sam and others. Sam and Ramnick gave employees the opportunity to invest in FTX.com for the first time at a 50% discount. And the limit to this was 250k, which could be matched with up to a 250k investment from FTX US at the market rate. So that would bring the total to 500k. They heavily marketed this deal to all employees. Most saw this as an amazing opportunity. Everyone from top leadership down to customer service. Shares had to be earned at FTX and no employee received equity when they were hired. Employees were given two weeks to send money to FTX before Thanksgiving and FTX was relentless on following up about it. Sam and others marked this as an opportunity to make 100% of your money overnight and 4 to 5x over a few years. The majority of people invested more than they should. Everyone believed in Sam. Many have now lost their entire life savings because they saw Sam and FTX as a safe bet and they believed him. Employees now fear their money has been all sent to Alameda. On June 6th, 2022, Sam claimed that he was hiring more people while he cut jobs on Twitter. He went to CNBC to talk about this. Sam cut 20 plus people the next day. Employees found out that they were being fired when they couldn't speak in the Slack chat anymore. They were removed individually, one by one. Sam didn't fire employees directly. He only posted a message in the internal Slack hours after firing and more or less blamed the employees for not being culture fits. Not a culture fit was a very common phrase. Employees that disagreed with Sam on things were very quickly removed. Finally, one last thing that's not widely known is the power dynamics of FTX. Nishad's long-term girlfriend, Claire, was hired in January after living with Sam for a month in a shared apartment in Albany. She was immediately promoted to executive and head of HR. She had the power to fire anyone she deemed to not be a culture fit and who disagreed with Sam. Claire ran the show day-to-day alongside Constance. Sam's inner circle consisted of himself, Constance, Nishad, Claire, and Gary. A few ex-Alameda traders that joined the FTX Ventures team also knew what was going on. That was it. That was hard. These are people's real lives that he's messing with. And unfortunately, it's had a massive financial impact for his employees, for his customers. But SBF, when you first look at him, he comes off as this like avid philanthropist. He made claims saying he's planning to give away most of his 11-figure fortune, but he only gave away 0.1% of his net worth so far. He founded the FTX Future Fund for this purpose. It's a $2 billion venture fund to back blockchain and Web3 development. And after the collapse of FTX, the entire 
FTX Future Funds team resigned. Although before they resigned, they, they did commit $160 million in charitable grants and investments by September 1st, 2022. He gives away a lot of money. A lot of money also to politicians. I don't know how pure his reasons are here, and I'll explain why. He's the second largest individual donor to Joe Biden in the 2020 election, second only to Michael Bloomberg. In the 2020 U.S. election, he contributes $5.2 million to the Biden campaign. Contributions for June 2021 through February 2022 went to members of both parties. So not just the Democrats. He is donating to both parties, which is kind of sus. Like, if you are wanting to support a specific political campaign, why would you donate to their opponents? Well, let me explain. So the donations from June 2021 through February 2022, they go to the Republican campaigns of senators, including Susan Collins of Maine, Mitt Romney of Utah, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, and Ben Sass. I don't know if it's Sass or Sasse. I'm not from the U.S. You guys know that. But anyways, he's the senator of Nebraska. So he donates to Republican senators. He also, in 2022, provides financial support for the Protect Our Future PAC. And this was launched as a Democratic Political Action Committee, that's what PAC stands for, with $10 million, with the initial funding aim to support lawmakers who play the long game on policymaking in areas like pandemic preparedness and planning. So Bankman-Fried's the second largest individual donor to Democratic causes outside of the Republican donations that he's made. He's the second largest individual donor to Democratic causes from 2021 to 2022 in that election cycle. And his donations at this point total $39.8 million, only behind George Soros. So he donates close to $40 million to the Democratic Party during the 2020 U.S. midterm elections. And in February 2022, he says that his political contributions are not aimed at influencing his policy goals for the cryptocurrency ecosystem, which is BS. But they're circulating a list of suggestions to policymakers at the same time. In an interview, he said that he would prefer the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, the CFTC, to take a larger role in regulating and guiding the crypto industry. And the CFTC, its reputation, it's supposedly a little bit more lax in regulations when you're looking at other regulators like the SEC or the Securities and Exchange Commission. SBF also pushes for regulation. For somebody that's, you know, deep in crypto, the whole crypto space is all about avoiding regulation. So it's decentralized. That's the whole purpose of crypto. And that's what people will tell you. But anyways, SBF, for somebody that's in crypto, pushes for regulation, and he's extensively lobbying Congress, donating to all these political campaigns, trying to, you know, weasel his way in so that these regulations are favorable to FTX, but harmful to the broader industry, especially its decentralized finance competitors. So he's, he's playing both sides. He's trying to have his cake and eat it too. He's, he's donating to all these politicians so that he can benefit himself, and all of the other competitors in crypto are worse off. That's a lot to look at. A lot of data there, but all of this as I was diving into it, I'm like, what is going on? And now I know. And now you know too. Another news, if you're still curious about other random facts about him, he's vegan. He probably escaped to Dubai. 
at this point. There was rumors that he was planning to escape to Dubai. We'll see if he was actually, we'll see if he actually made it out there. I feel like I can finally conclude this chapter of my life. I feel like I was in this FTX research rabbit hole every day, uncovering more and more like fascinating information about him and his team. All in all, to summarize, like a big TLDR for you guys is this whole fiasco, a kid trying to run a billion dollar company, running it like a startup, running around with billions of dollars of other people's money. And this is why I always tell you to look into who was managing the company before you invest it. Also, why I never promoted nor talked about FTX and BlockFi. Always do your research. Stay rich. Stay humble. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Miss Independent Podcast. Until next week, friends. Ciao.